that was written. Most likely, it's written somewhere between the years 445 and 420 B.C. More specifically, though, it was written most likely in the years 432 to 431 B.C., the years that Nehemiah was back in Persia giving his report to the Persian king. Those of you that come regularly on Sunday night know that we just finished the study of Nehemiah. That's where we left it in the final chapters of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was back visiting the king, came back. There were problems there. And we said that in the, in the coming lesson on Malachi, we'd fill in some of the blanks there. I hope to do that tonight. Nehemiah and Malachi were contemporaries. They both ministered in the same place at approximately the same time. There's a lot of discussion as to whether Malachi's name, the author of this book, was really Malachi. People, there's, there's a volume of things written on this. It really doesn't matter to me. I, I have to tell you, I, I'm more interested in the content of the book of Malachi and the message of Malachi as to whether the guy's name that wrote it was really Malachi or he was writing under a pseudonym. I don't think the evidence for a pseudonym is that strong. So I'm not going to really cover all that. I believe that Malachi really did write, write Malachi, but I'm more concerned with the, the content of his message. Malachi was one of three post-exilic prophets that wrote along with Haggai and Zechariah, and he was certainly the last one chronologically, even though we can't be dogmatic about exactly when he wrote. It may be helpful to, at this point, before we go into Malachi proper, to review just a few things that we've studied over the last of the prophets so we can see where we are from a historical perspective. The first group of returnees from Babylon consisted of about 50,000 people, and they came in under Zerubbabel's leadership approximately 538-537 B.C. Ezra chapters 1 through 6 record the experiences of that first 50,000 returning group. Haggai and Zechariah ministered to these returnees, both arriving around the years 520 B.C. We studied that in previous studies. They urged them to rebuild the temple. You remember why? Because Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem is the center of Yahweh worship. So they had to have the temple in order to have the full experience of Yahweh worship. We're different now. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So we can meet in a, in a church or in a school or in a field like Litchfield and, and Wesley did after getting thrown out of the church over in England, and it's still appropriate and full Christian worship. For the Jews, it wasn't exactly the same way. They had to have the temple. So that's why Haggai and Zechariah 520 B.C., they are urging the Jews to rebuild the temple. The events that are recorded in the book of Esther take place in Persia between 482 and 473 B.C. Then there's a second group after Esther. There's a second group of returnees that's much smaller, about a tenth the size, only about 5,000 Jews return in 458 B.C. under Ezra's leadership. So you have the first returning group, 50,000, pretty large group, under Zerubbabel and one of the things that's easier to remember about when these guys came, Zerubbabel came back to Jerusalem to clean up the rubble. It's just one of those catchy little things that you can remember. Don't say that real fast. It's a tongue twister, but Zerubbabel comes back to Jerusalem to clean up the rubble. That way you can remember that he's first. And then Ezra leads the second group back. It's a much smaller group. Under Ezra's ministry, one of the things that Ezra wanted them to do was beautify the temple. It wasn't anywhere close to the, the temple of old. Ezra was trying to 
motivate them to make it a better place to worship. And that comes from Ezra chapter 7 through 10. Then Nehemiah, who we have recently finished studying, leads the third group back. And this is another large group. Nehemiah leads about 42,000 back. So it's 50,000, 5,000, and then 42,000. He does this in approximately 444 B.C., and the events that were recorded in Ezra, if you'll recall, took place between 445 and 420 B.C., and the major event in the book of Nehemiah was the rebuilding of the wall. Because again, if they were to have full Jewish Yahweh worship, they needed a wall around that city for protection. We also saw that one of Nehemiah's other primary messages was that the city should be repopulated. If there was going to be full Yahweh worship, they needed the temple rebuilt, the wall around the city rebuilt, and Jerusalem had to be repopulated so that it could be defended. Now, Malachi ministers in this final period, the period of Nehemiah. There is an overlap of the message or the messages between Nehemiah and Malachi, and that is not surprising. You shouldn't find it surprising at all that they're going to cover some of the same material. It's unfortunately true that most people can't hear a message just once and totally comprehend the whole thing. Think back, if you can, to when you were in college. Remember you took notes on the class in college. Then you went home and studied those notes. And then you knew that two weeks from then you're going to have a test on those notes. So you went and studied again and committed the things to memory. Either fortunately or unfortunately, our churches are not that way. We probably ought to take it more seriously. We probably ought to take notes. We probably ought to go home and study those notes and, and so that these things become more real to us. But unfortunately, most of us in churches don't hear a message just once and then pick up everything the same at the same pace. Sometimes people aren't ready for a particular message. Sometimes it's not something that's on their radar at a particular moment. A, a subject's not on their radar. That's why sometimes people will say after a particular message, Wow, that was a tremendous sermon. I wish you'd have preached that 10 years ago. And I said, well, I preached it two weeks ago. <laughs> you know, but, and it, well, I was here two weeks ago. I didn't hear that. Yeah, we, we actually did cover that. And you know what? And that's okay. Sometimes people get things at a different pace, and that's okay. Because it's my ministry philosophy to do the best that I can to teach you the Word of God so that, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit can work with that Word through your soul to help you apply it and to help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's the, that's the reason I'm here. Timothy Keller, who was a pastor in New York in one of, the, one of his latest books on the person of Jesus Christ, said Jesus Christ was always more interested in the quality of his audience than he was in the quantity of his audience. He was more interested in the quality of his audience than he was in the quantity of his audience. My purpose in life is to help you as much as I can to move from a position of spiritual immaturity where we don't handle problems well to a position of spiritual maturity where we do handle problems well. That's my purpose as a pastor. Sometimes people say, well, what's the vision of Pine Valley Bible Church? That's it. I want you to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's why I'm here. That's why I prepared myself in the way that I did, as opposed to some other way, perhaps. That's why Paul has prepared himself. That's why Dan is preparing himself. That's why we have at least two other men in the church that are in the process of going to seminary right now, because that's important. I want you to get it. And if you get it now, that's, that's great. If you get it five years from now, that's okay, too. I just want you to get it one way or another. So the fact that there's an overlap 
between the messages of Nehemiah and Malachi, it's not at all surprising because God wants you to give it. And some of the things that maybe you missed in Nehemiah, you're going to pick them up now in Malachi. I hope that it works out that way. So I'm all for repetition. Repetition of the material that's been taught. Now, I'm not for rote repetition. Rote repetition would be something like this. I'm all for repetition. I am all for repetition. I'm all for repetition. I'm all for repetition. Are you getting it or not? I'm all for repetition. That's not the way people learn. But I am for spaced and varied repetition. And it's beautiful the way that we're going to see the interaction between Nehemiah and Malachi. Because while they'll cover some of the same material, they do it in a different format. And the difference in the format sometimes can be helpful in the way that we learn. So what we want to do is try to figure out as many different ways as we can to present the same material so that one way or another it will get through to all of us. All of us have this issue. This is not a knock on anybody. Please don't leave here and think that. When I was in seminary, I would take something in one class and then move on to the next class. Years later, you pull out one of your notebooks and say, I think that I can recall that. Well, it's right there in big writing. I put a star by it because I knew it was going to come up on the test. Again, the fact that Malachi and Nehemiah are going to cover some of the same things, don't let that, don't let that be off-putting. It also allows me the opportunity to at least present one other thing. There is no particular pastoral personality that's going to fit everybody. That's why God gave certain gifts to different types of personalities. Ezra has a certain personality. We can tell from his writing. Nehemiah had a different personality. And you're going to see Malachi has a different personality altogether. The way he handles it is totally different. So there's no one pastoral personality. Both both Malachi and Nehemiah dealt with priestly sloppiness in their ministry. They also dealt with the neglect of tithes. And they dealt with intermarriage with foreigners. You've heard all of that before, haven't you? Nehemiah dealt with some of the same, exact same things. When Malachi deals with priestly sloppiness in Malachi 1, 1, 6, Nehemiah dealt with it in chapter 13, 4, through all the way verse 9. Malachi will deal with the neglect of tithes. Now, Malachi's message is more famous with regard to neglect of tithes. Who doesn't know the passage about bringing your tithes to the storehouse and not robbing God? That comes from Malachi, not Nehemiah. But Nehemiah mentioned that too, didn't he? Malachi's just going to do it. In a different way. Malachi does it in chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. Nehemiah did it in Nehemiah 13, verses 10 through 13. Both of them will deal with this problem between intermarriage between Israelites and foreigners. Malachi will do it in chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Nehemiah did it in chapter 13, verses 23 through 48. Malachi, like Nehemiah, is not going to prohibit marriage with intermarriage with foreigners for racial reasons. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the principle of evil companions corrupting good morals. And the foreigners, generally speaking, were not Yahweh worshippers. There was one key exception. We saw her two weeks ago, and that was Ruth. She was a Moabitess. She was the exception to the rule. But most of the time, intermarriage with foreigners brought the culture down because they were not Yahweh worshippers, and it didn't work out. We have these three primary things that both Nehemiah and Malachi will cover. There were problems for these people who came back. Remember the, the 50, the 5, the 42,000. There were problems coming back into Israel. Not everything was great. There were economic problems and there were spiritual problems. Economically, harvests were poor. Locust plagues were a problem. If we can't eat, it's, a, it's an economic problem, isn't it? 
but there were also spiritual problems. And this is going to be the thrust of the book, are the spiritual problems that they were dealing with. Even after Ezra's reforms, remember how they turned things around. Even after Ezra's reforms and Nehemiah's amazing leadership, his principled leadership, he had a lot of success in getting them to rebuild the wall. But even after that, the people quickly became cold-hearted toward Yahweh and his people. That's a bit sobering to me. I really would like it if it would have worked out with regard to our spiritual life like climbing stairs. You know, you climb stairs and you get to one platform and say, well, I've done that. I've, I've succeeded there now. I'm, gonna, I'm leveled off in this platform. Now I'm going to go up to the next one. I've climbed those stairs and I've succeeded there. doesn't work that way in the spiritual life. I wish it did. In the spiritual life, you're either going up or down. There's no stairs to, to rest on. Not in that way. There's no platform there. You can't say, well, I have achieved spiritual maturity. Now I don't need to read the Bible anymore. I don't need to pray anymore. I don't need to attend church really anymore because I'm up here and that's where I'm going to stay. The very fact that you say something like that or would even think something like that tells you that you don't stay there. You're on a slippery slope all the way back down. Now, you're not on a slippery slope to lose your salvation. Not at all. But you would be on a slippery slope to lose the maturity that you have in Christ. Even the Apostle Paul was concerned with this. Later on in his life, well, at least in his late 50s, Paul probably lived into mid to late 60s, so it's the later portion of his life. He was concerned that he finished well because he didn't want to spend the entirety of his life focused on the passionate pursuit of Christ and then finish so poorly that he lost out on what he's going to call in 1 Corinthians the prize. Not eternal life, but a well done unto death pursuit of Christ. That's the prize that he's talking about. So while you can't lose your salvation, you can lose some of the reward that goes along with a faithful Christian existence, like Luke 19 and Matthew 25 reported. So these people had, to use an old term, it's not used a whole lot anymore, these were backsliders, a lot of them. They had gone back down rather than maintaining where they were. To maintain your spiritual life is something that requires constant attention. What I'm trying to say is you've got to keep your eye on the ball. You've got to keep your eye on the end result, on the future. What am, I, what am I trying to do here? What do I want my life to be like? Am I going to spend 70, 75, 80, whatever plus years on this earth, but I'm going to devote five of them to Jesus Christ? I'll give him five. That's what was happening to these people. There is no guarantee that your spiritual life is going to continue in the upward track if you put your eyes on heaven. Every single day, we need to wake up in the morning, and the first thing out of our bed needs to be to dedicate that day to Jesus Christ. Every single day. Now, whether that's in the form of just a thought or a prayer, as soon as you open your eyes, one of the, one of the, one of the things you might consider doing is, Lord, thank you for this day. Zig Ziglar who is famous because he was a motivational speaker, sold insurance. A lot of you will have heard of Zig Ziglar, motivational speaker. But what you might not also know is Zig Ziglar was a world-class Christian for years and years and taught Sunday school at First Baptist in Dallas. Zig does it a little bit differently. When he gets up, he says, <laughs> Thank you, Lord, for this day. Now, I don't know how his wife feels about that, especially if she's still sleeping. But the point is, every single day we've got to keep our eye on the ball. You don't get to take vacations from your Christian life. And who would want to? Who wants to take a vacation from Jesus Christ? I don't. Not for a minute. 
Now, we all do sometimes. Sometimes we'll take an hour off. You know what I mean? I think you do. Sometimes we'll take a couple days off, a couple weeks off. And then we realize that, you know, we haven't really had a significant prayer life in that two weeks. Sometimes people say, well, you know, my prayer life really hasn't been what it ought to be in two months. Or hasn't produced two years. And sometimes people are that way. And that's the reason I bring up prayer life is that's one of the areas where we can really test ourselves in that. How effective is our prayer life? How consistent is our prayer life? Then we'll be able to see is our boulder moving in the right direction. Now, many other ways of doing it. Let me warn you against something. Simply attending church doesn't mean it's a spiritual life by itself. Sometimes people have this attitude of spirituality by doing nothing. You know, I went to church this morning. I did my duty to God. And God says, do your duty, come back. You ought not, there's no duty in that sense. God wants you to come here because you love him. And because you know that he loves you. And if I was to summarize Malachi in one short phrase, it would be that if we're to ever have the spiritual life that we're supposed to have, we have got to understand and appreciate and embrace the fact that God loves us. And then once we embrace the fact that God loves us, then we love Him. And once we love Him, because who He is and what He is and what we know about Him and His Word, then and only then will we be obedient. This Jesus said, if you love me, then you'll obey my commandments. Ultimately, if you want to get to this mountaintop of spiritual maturity, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. There needs to be a focus on Jesus Christ every single day. You don't get to take days off in Christianity, and again, who would really want to? So there were, spirit, there were economic problems, and there were spiritual problems. Like those who came before him, Malachi's concern was that people would know God better so that they would love him more and then worship him more effectively. Did you get the order there? So that they would know God better, love him more, and then worship him more effectively. In today's Christian culture, so many people are wanting to skip the first step. And that's unfortunate. They want to say, I love God, and I want to have effective God on and worship. I'm not so big on learning about God. Now that, I'm happy to report, is changing. I'm very happy to report that. I, I believe... There's a cultural shift there within the Christian community to go back to the Bible. Some of the newer churches, some of the churches that are pastored by men in their, their late 20s and early 30s, and they are bringing biblical, biblical study back into the pulpit. And I'm thrilled by that because that's, that's the order it's got to come. We've got to know something about God before we can truly love him. Otherwise, if we don't know anything about him, and we say, I love God, we would have to reasonably ask, or you could ask yourself, who are you really loving? Yeah. If it's not the God of the Bible, but yet it's some being that you're calling God, you say, well, I love that being, then that's a God of your own imagination. And gods of our own imagination, I don't want to offend you, but gods of our own imagination are called idols. So you can say, well, I worship Jesus Christ and I'm worshiping God, but if it's not the God of the Bible, not the God that's revealed in the Bible, then that's not true worship. Some people say, well, I love Jesus Christ, but I don't think he's a God. That's not loving the God of the Bible. I love God, but I don't, and I think he's all good, but I really don't think he's all powerful. That's not the God of the Bible. So Malachi's order is going to be know God, love God, worship God. It's got to be in that order.
Malachi is best known, probably, other than the tithing passage, but he's best known to New Testament Christians for his prophecy that an Elijah figure, not Elijah himself, but an Elijah figure would come and announce the Messiah. That's chapter 3, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 5. When this is quoted in the New Testament, the New Testament makes it very clear that this is actually a reference to John the Baptist. And we'll study that as we go. We study the life of Christ, and most of us are familiar with that. Malachi is going to challenge the Jews with regard to seven specific things. In each case, his challenge will then in turn be challenged. You see what I'm saying? He's going to challenge them with regard to a sin. Then they're going to challenge his challenge. And then he's going to make a statement and respond to them. Seven times that happens. That's what I was saying about faith in varied repetition. Malachi's style is going to be totally different from Nehemiah's style. Totally different from Ezra's style. But it's going to be effective. Because the same Holy Spirit that's working through Malachi is working through Nehemiah and Ezra. You see, that's the common denominator, is the Holy Spirit. The reflection that they have to these seven statements by Malachi is not common. That's why I can make the statement that these were, these were folks that were not on the mountaintop of maturity. They had every opportunity to be. How would you like to have been ministered to by Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi? These people were ministered to by those people, but yet nevertheless still found themselves in a, a negative position spiritually. So their responses indicate to us that their spiritual condition was not good. The people in Malachi's time were going through the motion. Just like a lot of people in our time are going through the motion every day. I was there. I showed up. I went to the prayer meeting. I went to the prayer meeting every time we had one. But these two things, you and God, because that's the only ones that matter, when you're really focusing on the service and the prayer request, and we can just show up. I've got to tell you, you don't get any points for being there. But with us, you do. We say, oh, that's just a spiritual guy. Boy, he's a spiritual guy. God knows the difference, and he knows what's going on. The people in Malachi's time were going through the motions spiritually. I pray that we don't go through the motions. I don't know who we're trying to fool. You don't need to fool me. I don't need to fool you. God knows exactly what's in our hearts and our minds. They had a very superficial spiritual life. Now, specifically, Malachi revealed three things to these restored Jews to move them towards spiritual restoration. First, he's going to talk about the unfailing love of Yahweh. Then he's going to speak about their failure to properly respond to the love of God. In other words, their failure in worship. And finally, how do we fix that? The, sense, the secret of strength in an age of failure. Again, the message of Malachi, to sum it up in one sentence, would be this, or one phrase would be this. Malachi teaches us to appreciate God's love. And he says that appreciating God's love is the key to a God-honoring life. That's critical. You'll hear it again. But to summarize Malachi, we need to appreciate the fact that God loves us and respond to that love. That's how a dim-witted people are we when we know that God loves us, when we look at the cross and we don't despise it. Let's look at just a few verses in the, in the five or six minutes that we have left. The first few verses of Malachi chapter 1 begin this way. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. 
true, uh, all the books in the Bible have what I call a, a big A author and a little A author. The big A author of every book in the Bible is the Holy Spirit. The little A author varies. In this case, it's Malachi. The Holy Spirit is always the author of Scripture who works through human agents so that without setting aside the human agent's style, intelligence, background, personality, education, or any other factor, God's complete and coherent message is made clear to his people. Paul wrote differently from Luke. Luke wrote differently from John. Paul, Luke, and John wrote differently from Peter. They all had different educational backgrounds, different styles, and those who are really skilled in New Testament Greek can take a passage, say a paragraph, without knowing who the author was. Um, they don't know based on what it says, but, but they could take and, and tell you most likely who the author of that was just based on the style, the terminology that they used. Those who are really skilled can do that. The same can be said from, for the writers of the Old Testament. Moses was different from Nehemiah, who was different from Ezra, who was different from the author of Esther, who was different from Malachi. But there is a consistency of message. That's the beauty of the Bible. The Quran was allegedly written by one individual. The Bible is written by a multitude of individuals over a long period of time. Yet the message is cohesive because there's one Holy Spirit. There is one big A author of Scripture, and that's the Holy Spirit. In verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, and that's the, fact, and that's the statement that Malachi is making. This is their response. But you say, how hast thou loved us? What a bold thing to say. Malachi comes up and says, God loves us. And you say, well, how does God love us? I mean, wait a minute. You're telling me God loves me? I've got cancer in my liver. My house payment's late. My daughter doesn't care anything about me anymore. And you're telling me God loves me? How does God love me? That's the attitude that is reflected here. Malachi says, God loves you, and they, they answer back in a very negative way from a spiritual perspective, how has God loved us? Malachi answers back, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountain a desolation and appointed his inheritance to the jackals of the wilderness. So Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build up the ruins, thus says the Lord of hosts. They may build, but I will tear down, and the men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. And your eyes will see this, and you will say, The Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. Malachi answers back, Well, you want to know how the Lord loves you? Well, let me just give you that right. Now, if I was answering that back today, post-cross, I'd say, You want to know the Lord lo how the Lord loves you? You question that the Lord loves you? I would say that he demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, what else do you need, Lord? What else do you really need? What other evidence do you need besides the fact that Christ died for you? What else does God have to do, really, to get our attention, to prove to us that he loves us and that we should love him in return? He's already died for us. He's already done the best thing. Oh, I see. Well, he died for me, but if you'll just give me that new job, or if you'll just get that girl that I've got my eyes on to say yes when I ask her out on a date, then I'll realize that you love me. No. 
how we should realize he loves us by the fact that he's already sent his son to die for us. Now, his cost, Malachi takes a different tactic. And he says, you know how you know God loves you? He chose you. He picked you. He elected you out of all the nations. Now, don't get this confused with individual election. This is corporate election. God chose Israel out of all the nations through no merit of their own. God was very specific about that. They weren't any better than any of the other nations, but he chose them through no merit of their own and set them apart. Especially, I like it that he doesn't go back to Abraham here because you could say, well, Abraham wasn't that saved. He was from, maybe there was a reason to choose Abraham. But why choose Jacob over Esau? Well, we've, we've been studying that for some time. We've studied Jacob and we've studied Esau. Now, at the point in time we are right now in that study, Jacob has recovered and he's doing really, really well. But remember back to the beginning of it? Jacob and Esau, there wasn't time towards the difference between those two guys, was there? I mean, there really was. Both of them weren't reflecting a serious walk with God. It would appear as though Jacob had placed his faith in that way, and Esau hadn't. But in terms of their own general goodness, they weren't that different. He's a patriarch. I mean, even his name talks about being a deceiver. He was living a lie just like his sons ended up living a lie later on. Really, you can make a case that in some ways Esau might have been the better person. You want to know how I love you? He tells the Jews. He tells the Jews. And Malachi, you should know that I love you because I picked Jacob over Esau. Now, Esau ended up being the father of the Edomites. That's why that comes up a little bit later. But what he's saying is God loves you. And this is the way that it has been demonstrated. I've loved Jacob, but I've hated Esau. Now, a lot of people have really been out of shape about that passage. And then it's used later on, too. And they say, well, that must be some sort of contradiction to the idea of for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should never perish but have everlasting life. Well, wait a minute. You say if you're going to love the world, then you then love Esau. No, this is a relative choice. When we talk about hatred and love in Old Testament terms, in Hebrew terms, it's a relative choice. In this context, it refers to hatred not positively but relatively. That is, he did not choose Esau, he chose Jacob over Esau. That's what it means. He's like he loved Jacob, he hated Esau. The idea that is this book opens, and it's going to be the theme for the entire book, and that is that God loves you. And we must embrace the love of God if we're to experience a spiritual life that's fulfilling. For God so loved the world. This is a staggering theologian, who evangelicals have some serious disagreement with, to be sure, nevertheless, I think captured the idea that Malachi is going to present here when he was asked to summarize everything that he had ever learned from the Bible, or about God's revelation. Now, Bart ended up saying was, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Again, please, I do have some serious problems with Karl Barth, both spiritually and personally, both with his theology and with the way that he lives his life. But I do have to at least compliment him on that pithing statement. Because if we'll realize, I think Malachi would have agreed with him, if they'll realize that God does love us, then that's going to motivate us to love him, to know him, to love him, and to worship him in a more effective way. I don't have any problem with Bart in that particular statement. 
as we close this out tonight, I would ask you to pray. Ask God to help you to pray. Or if I may just say it, God loves you. Do you accept that? Are you answered back? It's like the person with a hand on their hip would, would prove it. Say, how do you know God loves me? Look at all the things that have happened in my life. You're not, you can't tell me he loves you. Listen, I know a lot of people have gone through a lot of very difficult things, but I do know that Jesus Christ died for me and for them. I haven't made that secret plain to any remnant of these other people. And I don't mean to be bold or, or unkind in any way by saying that. But I do know what my Lord did for me. And I know that rings much louder than any suffering situation I've ever had to deal with. Does God love me? Yes, he does. But we must, at some point in our spiritual life, come face to face with God's love for us and the cross, because that's where it's square. We must come face to face with God's love for us if we're ever going to prosper spiritually. 